At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through this three-week series, we're turning to the biblical book of Isaiah to discover how God's holiness, forgiveness, and love compel us to share Him with others. We'll come face-to-face with whatever's keeping us from answering God's call as Isaiah did. Send me. You would remain standing for the reading of God's word. It's from Isaiah chapter 6. It flows so beautifully from what we just sang, as the prophet is called. It says this in verse 1, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, go. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this time of praise and worship where we can be gathered together to hear from you. Father, would you give us eyes to see today? Would you give us ears to hear all that you would have for us? We want to be transformed today by the good news of your gospel. Lord, I know that you have such powerful work that you need to do in each of our lives through your spirit. Help us to be receptive to what he speaks. Thank you for this time. May all of our praise and worship have brought you honor and glory. Help us to be expectant in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Have a seat. It's wonderful to be with you today. My name is Stephen Zerilli, one of the pastors here at Woodside, and excited about the text that we have today in this mini-series from Isaiah chapter 6. Please turn in your Bibles there if you brought them. Grab a pen, grab something to take some notes with. It's going to be a day where we dive deep into the Word of God, and I'm looking forward to that. As you're turning there, just an update. Typically when Pastor Chris or myself comes here to preach or to share with you, we give you an update on some of the things that are happening in the search for the Royal Oak Campus Pastor. And so tomorrow... Have an update for you. We have uh, two candidates. I think I shared that the last time I was here. Both the candidates will be experiencing their third interview tomorrow morning. Um, And then we'll have that wrapped up tomorrow. Their fourth interview uh, with Pastor Chris should be done within the next week, week and a half. 
We're hoping by God's grace that sometime by the end of this month or uh, shortly thereafter, we'll be able to have a candidate to present to the staff here, the leadership here, and then ultimately to present to you guys here on a Sunday morning as well. So please be in prayer, but hopefully this next four to six weeks, we'll see some great movement with that. Uh, I feel good about how things are progressing, and uh, we'll see what the Lord has. So We'll continue in that journey together, and he has good things in store, not just when this new leader and his family might come, but also just right now. God has been on the move. He's been working. You guys have such an amazing leadership team here, and I'm just thankful uh, to serve with you, serve with them, and to bring the word today. So I hope you're ready to dig in. Let me begin with this question. What is our greatest need? What is humanity's greatest need? Maybe you've heard of the famous British street artist, Banksy. Uh, Banksy, no one really actually knows who he, she, or they are, or if it's one person or a group of people. Uh, Most people assume that it's a male based on one interview that they had apparently with him. He's followed by millions of people. His art sells for millions of dollars. He's a political activist, really, who stencils graffiti on walls and buildings and bridges and streets all over the world. Uh, There were some here in the States, certainly one that was famous in New Orleans um, after Hurricane Katrina. It's actually one of the pictures that's up on those screens. But Banksy wrote some books as well, and if you know his satirical writing, he speaks about maybe not what he believes, but certainly what he sees, what he observes from humanity. And here was his observation. What is our greatest need? Well, this is what he said. He said, there are four basic human needs, food, sleep, sex, and revenge. It's fascinating to actually think about that observation. Maybe his answer, again, wasn't warm out of that personal belief, but from watching humanity's behavior, is that an appropriate list? What do you think? It's an extremely important question. What is our most basic need, our greatest need? Let me suggest an answer, but it's going to take me a little bit of time to get there. So we're going to put on our philosophical hats just for a moment. I hope you're prepared to do a little deep thinking. 10 a.m., you've had your coffee. You should be awake and ready to go, but we're going to go deep today, and I hope that's all right with you. As we dive into this topic of our greatest need, you'll see where it goes. It's worth the journey. One of the most common arguments against Uh, the existence of God that atheists give is called the argument from whores. Maybe you've heard it called the problem of evil. And I'm sure we can all agree that we have an overabundance of whores, of evils, we could pick from in our world today. You could pick your war or atrocity, Russia and Ukraine, human trafficking, genocide. Basically, here's how the argument goes. It says, since there are so many cases of significant pain and suffering in the world that God could easily prevent if he is perfectly powerful, a word that we use called omnipotence or omnipotent, and perfectly good. That means omnibenevolent, all good. If he is perfectly powerful and perfectly good, he could then easily prevent these significant points of pain and suffering. The fact that all this evil was not uh, prevented means it is very unlikely, if not impossible, that God exists. Now, we won't get into all of the philosophical weeds and process through a fully fleshed out biblical answer 
to this argument this morning. It would take more time than we have to walk through what Christian thinkers call the way of theodicy. The way of theodicy is part of a Christian response to that issue or argument. The way of theodicy says that God may have very good reasons to permit evil in the world. It would also take more time to walk through the way of inscrutability. Uh, That's the fact that we aren't always able to understand or guess why God is justified in allowing evil. But it ultimately does boil down this question that I'm sure you've heard and I'm sure you've wrestled with. It boils down to whether you trust who God has revealed himself to be as both omnipotent, perfectly all-powerful, and omnibenevolent, perfectly and all-good. Now, on the flip side, the atheist or the skeptic who brought up the problem has their own problems and set of questions that they need to respond to. Questions like, how can there be personal good and evil in an impersonal universe made only of matter and energy? A simple way of saying that question, if the universe doesn't care, then why do you? One Christian author put it this way, the atheist must live with an unresolved or worse yet unresolvable tension of experiencing moral longings. Every human being desires that there is something called morality. They experience moral longings in a universe void of moral bearings. Now the Christian story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, the Christian story, the narrative of our Christian worldview is big enough to fit in the problem of evil. And what's obvious from the very first book to the very last is that there's this thing called sin, rebelling against God's way, against God's law, that has devastating effects on the world and our lives. Sin does incomparable, incomprehensible, inescapable damage to us physically, emotionally, intellectually, intellectually, relationally, and certainly spiritually. And God has permitted sin to exist at least for now. So here's the connection. The scriptures make it clear that sin is real and that we all have fallen into its trap. That's the Christian story. If the Christian story is true, if we have all rebelled against a living God, if we have all done things that are evil because they are in opposition to God's goodness, if, we, uh, if our sin has immediate and eternal both here and forever consequences, then the greatest need of human beings is to experience God's forgiveness. One Christian said it like this, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a savior. Now the ultimate goal of God's word is not, it's not inner peace or financial wisdom or moral ascension or Jewish history or world history or self-actualization or scientific theory. The Bible is not opposed to these things. They simply aren't the center of its focus. The whole point is this, it's restored relationship between God and humanity through the forgiveness of sins, which is for our good and his glory. Now, This is the end game of our faith. The outcomes of receiving that forgiveness 
are immense. They're incredible. It's eternal life and eternal community and eternal intimacy, eternal love, eternal joy, eternal peace and eternal purpose. So that's more important and longer lasting than the outcomes of food, sleep, sex, and revenge. Wouldn't you say? So if your greatest need as a human being has been met, that God's forgiveness, you have received God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus as your Savior, if you have received your greatest need, if it is yours now by faith, wouldn't you want to share that with other needy people? What we'll see this morning in a few short verses is that God's forgiveness, it compels us to go. If we, if we have received it, it compels us to go. God's forgiveness is not a passive reality for us. It's not like we say, yeah, I'm forgiven. Glad that's done with. Glad that chapter is closed. Glad me and God are good now, so I don't need to think about all of my guilt and shame anymore. It's, it's over with. It's done with. I don't even need to think about this concept of forgiveness anymore. No, God's forgiveness is on the move. It's compelling, and it compels us to move. Sometimes that means we are needing to forgive. Sometimes we are needing to ask for forgiveness. Sometimes we need to trust that we are already forgiven. Sometimes we need to celebrate forgiveness. Sometimes we need to lament the lack of forgiveness around us or in us. Sometimes we need to be motivated by forgiveness. Sometimes we need to pray that other people would take steps towards forgiveness. One atheist wrote a blog entitled, An Atheist Take on the Virtue of Forgiveness. And he said, I am not a fan of Christianity. For many years, I have been what some might call a militant atheist, the type who is far more likely to catalog the pitfalls of faith than to highlight the benefits. But more and more, I am enamored of one element of Christianity that I consider its most striking and most laudable feature, forgiveness. It's what the world desperately needs. It's what we all desperately need. It's what they need to see. So all of this leads me to the question I'd like you to wrestle with for the rest of our time together this morning. Has forgiveness reshaped your life? Is it still reshaping your life? We're spending three short weeks here in Isaiah 6 in this series, Send Me, when God calls us to go. And Isaiah the prophet, the author of this text, his life was completely reshaped by forgiveness. His calling was shaped by forgiveness, which is what we see here. Let me remind you of the context, just where we are in the word of God as we dive into these verses. Here's a reminder of that setting. It was 740 BC. The 12 tribes of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. 10 tribes formed a coalition in the north, and they continued identifying themselves as Israel. The two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, united in the south to form the kingdom of Judah. Now, the northern kingdom had abandoned the law of God. They'd fully embraced idolatry. If you read through the list of kings for their entire history, from start to finish of that divided kingdom, there is not one king that is mentioned in the scripture to be good. All of them, every single one in those northern tribes were said by the authors of the scriptures that they did what was evil in the eyes of God. So eventually, of course, they were on their way to being conquered 
And that happened in 722 BC by the kingdom of Assyria. Now to the south, Judah's great king in 740 BC, Uzziah, he had died after a 52-year reign. During his reign, Judah's capital, Jerusalem, it was strengthened. Their economy grew. Their enemies were defeated. And it said in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 of Uzziah, it said Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And yet, towards the end of Uzziah's life, he, he still became proud, disobeyed the Lord, walked away from the way of Je- uh, away from uh, the covenant, and then he suffered through an eleven-year struggle with leprosy. Judah had again fallen into defiant sin. During those last eleven years, they were double-minded when it came to their covenant with God, and they spent their time waffling between allegiances. Are they going to follow the covenant that God gave them through Moses at Sinai that they know they ought to be obedient to? Are they going to follow the rituals of the pagan people around them, the pagan nations around them? Their earthly king was basically as good as dead for a whole bunch of years, and now he's actually dead. And nations, of course, with weak kings or without kings are vulnerable. They're weak and ripe for an invasion. So they're asking themselves, where are we going to turn? The administration is weak. They're not consistent with our beliefs or our thoughts. What what are we going to do? What's going to happen to us? We're, We're not sure we can trust those who are in leadership. God's word has no parallel at all to today's situations, does it? We never ask those kinds of questions. We're never wondering what's going to happen, where we're going to turn, What are we going to do when the throne is either empty or it's full with someone, either now, before, whenever? It's inconsistent with our heart. A book as old as the Bible can't have any relevancy, can it? Judah's throne was empty. And it's in this moment that Isaiah the prophet receives a vision of God in heaven on his throne, glorious and lifted up. And in this vision, his power is unmistakable. It's unmatched. The purity of his holiness overwhelmed every inch of his creation. His presence symbolized by smoke consumed every corner of the temple. It means that he was omni, all present. There was no hiding. There was no escape. And what was Isaiah's response to this vision of God's glory that we read about in the first four verses? Well, we come to verse 5, and I said, that is Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He responds as so many others do. Whenever a glimpse of God, a moment of clarity is received with a recognition of their sin. When Moses saw a glimpse of God's glory, Exodus 3, it says that he hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. When Peter saw a glimpse of Jesus' glory, when he miraculously caught all those fish and filled up two full boats with fish, when he saw that this certainly was more than just a man, this was the God-man, he said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When John received a vision of Jesus, 
He wrote in Revelation chapter 1, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. God's purity was breathtaking to see, but it also exposed Isaiah's impurity. God's holiness was magnificent to see, but it also exposed Isaiah's unholiness. God's power was awe-inspiring to see, but it also exposed Isaiah's weakness. When our hearts are stacked up next to perfection, hopelessness is the only emotion that we're left with. We become desperately aware of our need for God's forgiveness. So Isaiah, he witnesses a scene of worship. And what's interesting is he doesn't join in. He should join in. God is worthy of praise. He's worthy of worship. He should sing, but he can't. He can't open his mouth and join the song. Instead, he is immediately full of despair. He says, woe is me. The NIV, New International Version, translates that next phrase, I am ruined. The ESV says, I am lost. When you look at the Hebrew, you could actually translate it, I am silent. I have nothing to say. How could Isaiah and how could his people join in worship when their lips are unclean? Lips shape our speech and speech reveals what's in our heads and what's in our hearts. So he immediately knew his unholy presence was in conflict with the holy presence of God. It's amazing that he even saw the king, the Lord of hosts, and was still alive. Would you even want to catch a glimpse of God's glory? When you read about all the stories in Scripture, I actually have to ask myself that question. Would I, would I want to see him for who he really is in all of his glory and perfection and majesty when I see all the responses? Maybe you're thinking, no, thank you. And if we're honest, most people would much rather sit comfortably in their ignorance, never really having to identify the gap between who he is and who we are. But maybe you're curious. Maybe you're asking the question, is it even possible for us to see God's glory? I'm not one of these men or women that we read about in Scripture, so is it even possible for us to catch a glimpse of who he is? And the Scripture tells us, yes, we have and we do. Through the Word of God, through the witnesses to the life of Christ Jesus, even through observing creation itself, Romans 1, 20 and 21, we are able to see the holiness, the power, and the majesty of God who sits forever enthroned. We're able to recognize that men and women might sit on thrones all across the world for a few years, maybe even a few decades, but their reign will always come to an end. Palaces, they come and go, friends, we know this, thrones change from kingdom to kingdom. People gain power and then lose it. Lines are drawn and then redrawn. And no king or queen has ever even made it to the century mark sitting on that seat. Not even a hundred years. Yet the Lord of hosts sits upon the throne and has never been nor will ever be unseated. And this is what Isaiah saw. And this is what God desires us to see. Our eyes see a lot of supposed kings and queens. Political figures, sports figures, celebrity figures. You can pick your own self-proclaimed mavens and leaders and influencers. And it's this malicious little defect found 
Not just in a few out there, but actually in all of us. It's, it's that voice that says quietly to us, we usually don't say it out loud, but it's that voice that says, I want to be on the throne. I want my name to be praised. I want to be recognized. I want to be set apart. That's what holiness means. I want to be there. And it makes some sense when you think about it, because if we have been created by God unique from all the rest of creation, there's nothing else like humanity in all of the created order. We have been created in his imago Dei, in the image of God. And so it makes some sense, perhaps, that we, through temptation, might think, well, if I'm created in his image, I want that throne. I want that seat. Sometimes we're clever enough to sing the praises of someone else around us, one of our kids or our grandkids or our friends. We're going to lift them up and crown them. But even then, deep down, we're still just crowning ourselves. We find our coronation in theirs. I notice that as a parent, as my kids get older and I go from one sport thing or school thing or, you know, dance thing or basketball thing or soccer thing to another, it's, it's coronating the queen or the king children, but ultimately that's for the glory of the parent or the grandparent. It's this game that we all play. So since the very beginning of our story, we struggle with the desire to put ourselves on the throne of the king, the Lord of hosts. This is exactly how one brilliant pastor and author, his name is Mark Sayers. It's a good one to write down. You want to write that name down, Mark Sayers, S-A-Y-E-R-S. He described our culture's underlying secular way of thinking. He said it like this, I think that what post-Christianity is and its belief in progress is a desire for the kingdom without the king. It's this, the greatest deception, here's the greatest deception, the greatest deception is that people believe they can experience the type of thriving that is promised in the Christian faith with God on his throne, but they believe they can get it without God at all. That's the myth of progressive secularism. The myth is that as we move away from faith, away from a belief in God, we'll eventually get to utopia where we all get to sit on our own thrones. Everybody gets to live like a king or a queen. Everybody gets a throne. That's our inalienable right. Secularism is all the promises of heaven without the need of a savior, without the need of forgiveness. Because ultimately in secularism, there's no such thing as sin. I'm not the problem. All of you are. You're not the problem. Everybody else is. It's our context. It's our upbringing. It's something else. Tell me that this is not what is dominating our culture. This way of thinking. Friends, don't buy it. Don't buy it. It's deception. This way of thinking is crumbling around us at the speed of the daily news cycle. Does the world without God look like progress to you? I mean, look at the evidence. Wherever and whenever we put ourselves in the place of the Lord, sin and death are sure to follow. It didn't take long for Isaiah to realize that sitting on the throne wasn't where he was created to be. It took him all of a millisecond to realize, that's not my seat. That's not where I'm supposed to be. He understood we thrive when we're simply in the room. 
That's where we thrive, when we're in the room, offering our hands, ready and willing to serve the king. That's what we're made for. But the only way to be in the room, the only way to offer our hands is to remove our impurity, our sin, by receiving forgiveness. We must receive God's forgiveness. Without God's forgiveness, you will always be hopelessly chasing after utopia. And even if you have received the forgiveness of God through Christ, so often we still go looking in other throne rooms for other kings to fill up our hands with a bounty that promises life, but all it delivers is loss. St. Augustine said it like this, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. So now Isaiah sees his situation, and he sees it as being so hopeless He doesn't even bother, notice the text, he doesn't even bother asking for cleansing. Notice what's not written there. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He recognizes his state. He recognizes the gap. And he can't do anything other than think about his hopeless estate. But in that moment, when he saw his sin most clearly, he underestimated something. He underestimated the grace of God. And that's why the Christian story is such good news. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Remember that seraphim are angelic beings. They are messengers of God. Uh, The word used uh, for them, seraphim, it literally means fiery ones or burning ones. It, it, It matches the sacrifices which were needed by anyone who desired to enter the temple. That's what's happening here. So the Jewish readers who saw this text, they understood the vision. They understood this meeting right away. The the seraph performs what's called a purging rite, R-I-T-E, a purging rite, So that Isaiah has the right, R-I-G-H-T, to enter God's presence. That's what's going on. It's a Jewish cleansing rite that you cleanse yourself before you step into the temple and into the presence of God. And that's literally what is happening here in this throne room of heaven. So this fiery seraph didn't come over to destroy Isaiah or consume him. He came to heal him by God's grace. Under God's command, God's messenger cleansed Isaiah from his sinfulness. Notice the order of this. Isaiah saw God for who he was. That's step one right there, to see God for who he is. Two, Isaiah saw his own sin in light of who God is and recognized his hopelessness without God's forgiveness. And number three, God sends his servant to forgive him. His guilt was taken away. His sins were atoned for. It means covered over. They were pardoned. Let's dig a little deeper into this idea of God's forgiveness. Now, in the book of Leviticus, God says to his people, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. If you're going to be in my presence, then you need to have the holiness of perfection. Meanwhile, in the New Testament, the Apostle John reminds us that God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. And God's love is as infinite and eternal and grand as His holiness. One's not greater than the other. So the question is, how can a holy God, 
allow sinful people into his presence. His love makes us think, well, everybody comes in. We're all accepted. We're all forgiven. In fact, if you go back about 10, 15 years, there's a pretty popular book. I might call it a little heretical that says love wins. Everybody's just forgiven. Now, if we look at the other side, his holiness makes us think no one's forgiven. None of us are accepted. None of us can be in his presence. The solution is God's servant, God's son, Jesus Christ. Paul put it like this. He said, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, the Son, we might become the righteousness of God the Father. Because of God's love and holiness, Jesus has both a message and a mission. His message was the gospel. The the gospel is that sin's awful price was paid in full through his perfect life of obedience. Through his sacrificial death on the cross in our place. Through his resurrection from the dead. And his mission, we said it before, was restore relationship through that gospel, through that sacrifice, through that resurrection between God and humanity through the forgiveness of sins, which is for our good and his glory. Isaiah's sins weren't ultimately forgiven because of a burning coal. The coal was simply a picture of God's altar. It was a picture of the altar, a picture of where perfect sacrifice was needed. Jesus was that sacrifice for everyone who came before him and for everyone who came after. The scriptures tell us that through faith, Romans chapter 3, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Friends, all of this build up to ask that question, have you received God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus? Have you recognized who God is? Have you caught a glimpse of him? Have you recognized your own sin and your hopeless situation apart from his forgiveness? Have you put your faith in his servant, Jesus, the Lamb of God who was sacrificed on the altar of the cross so that your guilt would be taken away? Forgiveness is our greatest need, and it is offered to you freely by God's grace. Now, what a gift. There's nothing you need more. Sleep, you'll need more tomorrow. Food, you'll need more in a few minutes, depending on who you are. The other things, revenge and intimacy and all that stuff, I'll leave it up to you. Forgiveness, God's forgiveness, that's what we all need. And once it's received, it's for eternity. Not for the moment, forever. Have you received forgiveness through faith? What are you holding on to that is keeping you from holding on to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Pride, power, pleasure, what? Everyone else, everything else is a bounty that promises life but delivers nothing but loss. Receive forgiveness through faith. King David, he was an adulterer and a murderer, if you know his story in the scripture. His greatest need was forgiveness, and this is what he wrote. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave 
the guilt of my sin. Forgiveness reshapes your entire life. And if God's forgiveness has reshaped you, then you must share that forgiveness with a world that desperately needs it. That's our second point. We'll do this very briefly. Most of this was a buildup, but this is the application. The application, of course, is reception of that forgiveness. But if you have received, then what? Well, what was Isaiah's response to God's forgiveness? Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Forgiveness launched him into his calling. Forgiveness launched him into his purpose. He knew he wasn't worthy to do anything for God, but because of God's grace, he is now called worthy. He knew he couldn't speak to his people when his lips were just as dirty as theirs. He had no story to tell. But now because of God's grace, he has a story to tell. If you've been forgiven by God through faith in Christ, you need to understand even when we're distracted, even when we get consumed by other things, worries, anxieties in life, right now through that faith that you already have, right now you have purpose. Right now you have mission. Right now you have a story to tell. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul puts it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry. Here's our purpose, friends. Here's what we're here for. Here's why God has not brought us into the throne room ourselves, because he gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's the gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us right now, whether you recognize it or not, the reality is God is making his appeal about Jesus Christ to the needy world through you. Through you, through me. That's what he's doing. We are the appeal. We carry this message. So we're compelled to go. And what other king is worth serving? What other calling, friends, is more meaningful? What other need would you rather fill in humanity's list than this. We've been given this ministry of reconciliation. Now here's the hardest part, and we'll close with this. Here's the hardest part. Do you see where all of this must start? It starts with that initial faith in Jesus. But in that journey, do you see the next step? Accepting God's forgiveness is the glorious part. I mean, that's the celebration. That's the moment we can all go back to in our minds and say, thank you, Jesus, for that moment of clarity. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. There's nothing but joy found there, but imitating God's forgiveness by extending it to others. I've been a Christian for 30 years, and that is still the hardest part. Jesus' words are very hard to soften when he said in Matthew 6, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. C.S. Lewis said it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Let me put it this way. God forgives the inexcusable in me to teach me to forgive others 
of their inexcusable acts. God's image is in us most perfectly played. It's most perfectly played out, that image within us, by our willingness to forgive others. People will see the clearest picture of Jesus when Jesus' followers forgive. Do you see it? We build bridges to Jesus by offering forgiveness to each other, to others. We build barriers to Jesus by withdrawing it. Are you building bridges? Are you building barriers? You're doing one of the two right now. So often we're like the two brothers who were playing nicely with sticks until one of them hit the other with the stick. All of a sudden they're swinging the sticks, shouting accusations and calling each other names. When their mom calmed things down and was putting them to bed, she said, Now boys, what would happen if either of you died tonight and you never had the opportunity again to forgive one another? Then one of the brothers said, Well, okay, I'll forgive him tonight, but if we're both alive in the morning, he'd better look out. Friends, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do. But let me just say this, because it's applicable to every single soul in this room. The calling on your life, if you are a follower of Jesus today and you've received Jesus, is to forgive them. Whoever the them is. Him, her, they. Forgive them. That's the hard part. And I've been wrecked this week by a deceased Christian author, L.B. Smeedes. He said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner is you. And I hope by God's spirit that some of you will be set free today from that slavery because you will take the courage, courageous step to finally forgive. God's forgiveness is what we all need to experience. His forgiveness is what we all need to extend. His forgiveness is what we all need to share with the world. It compels us to go and our only response is, here am I, send me. If you have these cups this morning, would you please get it out? We're going to take communion together now. And before we take these elements, let me just describe this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you understand what these elements mean. But maybe today, as you've heard this message, as you've heard about God's forgiveness being freely offered through Jesus Christ to every single one of you, you want to finally take that step because you have now come to the place where you see God for who He is. You recognize you are hopeless without His forgiveness and you want to put your faith in His servant Jesus. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then today you can be forgiven by God for eternity. Have the courage to be reshaped by God's divine forgiveness of your sin. Trust that He is good. Trust that He is working. Trust that he will work it out for you in both now and forever. And for all of you who have, this bread, it represents the broken body of Jesus, the juice is blood. And as I pray now, lead us in a prayer, maybe think as I'm praying about those 
that God is bringing to your mind where you need in your heart to take the step finally after years, after months, perhaps decades, maybe even to say, to release it to him and say, I forgive them. Your image, it's getting worked out in me. And today I'm going to take that step through the spirit. I forgive them. I forgive the pain they brought me. I forgive the words they said to me. I forgive all the things they did to me. I know what you've said about me, so I'm going to choose your way. I'm going to forgive them. And leave this place free. No longer a prisoner. Father God, thank you for this day. I pray for any who desire to receive you in faith. That they would pray now in their heart, in their mind, with every fiber of their being, Father, Forgive me of my sin. I recognize who you are, holy and good and righteous and just and love. I recognize my sin. I have fallen short. I know I need reconciled to you in the only way you've provided through faith in Jesus. So I put my faith in Jesus, your son, for the forgiveness of my sin. I believe he died and rose again. I believe he is my hope in salvation and new life. I call him now my savior and my Lord. And Father, for every person who has prayed that today or before, who believes that today or before, thank you for your son. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for the freedom that we have through faith. Thank you for providing our greatest need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This bread represents the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Together, let's eat. This juice represents his shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins together. Let's drink. And let's stand and respond. Let's sing to him together about his holiness, his goodness, our trust in him. Let's take the step of forgiveness today. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.